As we think about this day and get ready for it, I have a message really that I have not really preached in probably 30 plus years of ministry. It's about the return of Christ and it's about being ready for Christ's return. But before we get started, let's have a a brief introduction. How many of you, let's be honest now, this is Easter, how many of you have a hard time keeping secrets? Be honest, raise it high, don't be bashful. Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about bad secrets. I'm talking about good ones, you know, like you, you buy a, a birthday present in advance, days if not weeks in advance, or, or maybe a Christmas present, or you have some really good news that you know you, know, you can't quite share yet, like, like maybe a pregnancy or, or, a, or a, an, an, a, you know, a, a we, an upcoming wedding or something like that. It's a positive thing. It's a good thing. It's not harmful. It's not hurtful, but it's a, it's a really good secret. It's a, a real blessing, and, and you just boil up inside and you just want to share it. Now, how many of you would raise your hand on that? Okay, I think most of us have a hard time keeping in good news, really. I mean, there's something in us that just wants to share and express to everyone around us good news. Well, how many of us know someone or have known someone that had had some has good news they they know something that's really positive really a blessing something really good you suspect there's something that they're holding back there's a secret that they're keeping to themselves and you are just dying to know and you have done everything that you possibly can to get the information out of them have you ever done that you have haven't you i think really honestly all of us want to know the secrets that revolve around good things Well, the disciples in our passage this morning know that something is up, and they know that it's a good thing, and they're dying to know, they're curious to know, and they want Jesus to reveal the secret. The disciples are curious. They've heard Jesus talk about the end times. There have been occasions in which they had wanted to ask him some things, but they've been reluctant, I think, so far. And it's in this passage in Matthew chapter 24 where we see the disciples finally taking advantage of this very special moment where they, with Jesus, in a private moment, begin now to enter into a dialogue as to which they are saying, Jesus, when is the moment going to happen? Jesus has been in the temple until chapter 24 of the book of Matthew. He has spent the day ministering in the temple courts. He has preached and proclaimed the gospel message. It's at the end of the day, and he and his disciples are walking out of the gate that leads into the streets of Jerusalem. And as they are passing by the gate, one of the disciples sort of alludes to the fact that this temple that they are passing is just an incredible, magnificent wonder of the world. There's no edifice, there's no place like it, especially for the Jew, because it was symbolic of the presence of God. It was symbolic of the sovereignty of God. It was symbolic of where their Messiah would sit on his throne and reign and rule over Jerusalem. And so it was very strategic and very critical and very important to them. And this was a large, it was a beautiful edifice, and they were, they were proud of it, and they liked it. And so they walked by and said, Jesus, aren't you impressed with this incredible, magnificent structure and Jesus says as they're passing I think through the front gate out into the streets of Jerusalem hey in just a little while this temple will be destroyed alluding to the end of the age and so as they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem heading toward Bethany which is where they always stayed when they ministered in Jerusalem they didn't stay in the city proper they went out 
into the burb, into Bethany, and they were making their way through the city streets, and just happened, as they were making their way, they always passed next to the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is a special place for Jesus, and it's a place where Jesus takes this opportunity where he sits with his disciples in a time with just him and them. And it's a place in which, as they are sitting, they can see on this mountaintop, see sort of down below, the beautiful temple that has just been described as one of the guys, as one of the, one of the disciples, one of the amazing edifices or the most amazing, spectacular things, and wondering if Jesus was impressed by it. Of course he wasn't. Christ is never impressed by buildings. He's after people. And so Jesus takes this opportunity to say to them some things that are important to their understanding as to the secrets, the insights, the information that they're going to need as they seek to follow Christ. So I want us to take a look at the passage this morning, and I want us to look at three things. How we, like them, can be ready for the return of Christ. How can, be, how can we today, like them, be ready for Christ's return? How can we be ready? There are three things. I think in the text, first of all, we realize, and we learn as Jesus begins to enter in this dialogue, that he says that you must be real. You must be real. There must be an authenticity about your faith in Christ. Notice in the text, he says, beginning in the early part of the chapter, chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, after they've already had the encounter with the disciples about his impression of the temple, and he said, no, it's going to be destroyed. And as they're walking now, and they are sitting at the Mount of Olives, notice the conversation. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. Now, the important word in their question is the word when. The disciples understood the when to be immediate. They had been expecting and anticipating the Messiah to come. And when they were called to follow Christ, as we studied last week, where Jesus individually called them to take up their cross and follow him, and they left everything to follow him. And as they were following him and they heard of the kingdom, they, like all of their contemporaries during their day and time, expected for the Messiah to set up his kingdom then. They were longing and expecting for a Messiah to not only liberate them from, from Rome, but reestablish and reinsert himself over Israel and restore the glory of Israel, their beloved country. And these disciples had not yet grasped the fact that Christ wasn't going to set up his kingdom then. But they anticipated and expected that he would. So their question really, as you take a look at it, in being honest to the text, they're not referring to his return. They're referring to his now, Christ, when are you going to establish your kingdom, and when will the end of the age happen now? It's an immediate request. It's an immediate response. Oh, and when will it soon? It's going to happen while we are following you, and they clearly expect and anticipate for it to happen at any moment. And so they're wanting to know when will it happen in their lifetime. And Jesus said, <laughs> you expect it to be now, but it's not going to be now. It's going to be later. 
And he's about to give them some signs throughout the rest of this chapter until the passage that we're going to be looking at. In regard to signs that they can observe and signs that they can study and things that are going to happen in the culture and, and in the church and things that are going to happen that they will be able to say pretty much like a, 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 an expectant mother who sees the birth pains that when these things happen, that means my return is going to be soon. But it's interesting that Jesus gives them this warning. See that no one leads you astray. See that no one leads you astray. And following this passage, Jesus gives them some clear instructions about false prophets, false preachers, false theologies, false ideologies, false churches, false theology that is going to enter into the picture that is going to sway that is going to deceive many, and many will take the deception and will not be ready when Christ returns. And he's telling them, look to me, listen to my words, and lean on me. And he says to them, walk carefully. If there is ever a time we need that message, it is today. We need to walk carefully. Because there are many false prophets, many false preachers, many false religions, many false churches claiming to be the church, but are leading many astray. And we as disciples need to be discerning in our spirit to listen to the words of Christ and look to Jesus alone. Walk carefully. These are deceptive times, not just then, but even more so as we anticipate and expect at any moment, I believe, for Christ to return. He's coming soon. And because he's coming soon, we as his disciples need to walk carefully. Real disciples are careful who they follow. They are careful who they listen to. They inspect what they hear, and they go to the scriptures to validate what is being said. Walk carefully. Being real not only means to walk carefully, but it also means to wait confidently. We're going now to verse 36, where Jesus finally, you know, he, they ask it early on in verse 3, the question, and Jesus gives them kind of this long thing. It's kind of like one of, one of our, our Pastor Matt's sermons the other Sunday night where he gave us this long list of things. If you weren't in the disciple life thing, you need to be on Sunday nights over here. And uh, anyway, he gave them this long list of things they can expect and anticipate. And now in verse 36, now he begins to really answer their question. And so we jump now to verse 36, and it's here he says, my disciples must not only walk carefully, but they must wait confidently. We must wait with confidence. There's an expectation. There's an anticipation. There's a confidence that comes with trusting in Jesus. Notice what he says in the verse, verse 36, answering their original question. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of God. The only one who knows is the Father. But the Father is the only one who knows. Now, Jesus is revealing some interesting insights here. He's saying to them, there are some incredible signs like birth pains before a delivery that you can anticipate and you can tell when Jesus is coming. Observe those signs. But even though you may be able to observe those signs, you will not be able to know the exact moment, the exact day, or the exact hour when he will return. 
Not even the angels know that. Not even do I, Jesus says, knows that. The only one who knows that is the Father. And that should give confidence to us because, you see, God the Father is sovereign. He is sitting and reigning and ruling on his throne. And no one can dictate and determine exactly when that's going to happen but him and him alone. He has a plan. He has a purpose that he wants to fulfill. And until that plan and that purpose is fulfilled, he will not Say, sound the trumpet, boys. Jesus, get on down there and assume your throne and take charge of your kingdom. It's time for the end of the earth to begin. It's time for your home going. You know, we can put our confidence in God, for he is the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords, and it is God himself who reigns and who rules and who dictates and determines the when and the how. And we must put our trust in God. God alone knows when. And I've heard a lot of people today saying to us, with all the world things going on, it must be soon. There have been people in the past, I can remember in the 38 years of ministry, where people have sold everything they, they have, and they go and wait on a mountain and dress in white and wait for the coming of the Lord. And guess what? He didn't come. Did they not read this passage? But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor son, but only the Father, only the Father knows. And guess what? He's not going to tell you, and if he's not going to tell the angels, if he's not going to tell the son, he's just going to sound the trumpet, and it's going to be time to go. And it is God who dictates and determines when that happens. So we can have confidence that God is in charge. God is sovereign. He is on his throne. And because he is sovereign, because he is on his throne, and because he has a plan and a purpose, we can sit confident knowing that we can trust him with whatever happens in our personal lives and our life as a church. Wait confidently. But thirdly, he says, we need to walk committedly. There's a certain commitment that he wants from us. Notice in verse 42 at the end of the verse, it says, but you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. I like the words there, your Lord is coming. That is a personal pronoun. He is speaking to his disciples and he says, your Lord. I am your Lord. I am your personal Savior. I am your personal leader. I am the Lord of your life and I am coming. And until I come, I want you to make me Lord of your life. Gordon Dorian passed away on Good Friday. I don't know if you've heard it or not. Uh, One of the premier preachers, teachers in our city has been here for several decades and uh, was a personal friend of mine. The most positive, the most loving, the most caring man I have ever met. I can only wish to aspire to a part of what he was to me. And his funeral is going to be next Friday at uh, Central Christian Church at 2 o'clock, and I invite you to come. Uh, Pastor uh, a great church uh, on the west side of town, Olivet Baptist Church, and was a member of our church and taught Sunday school here for a couple of decades in his retirement. But as we sat and talked on a regular basis, six to ten times a year, we'd have breakfast. And over the almost nine winters, that I, ten winters that I've been here, going on to nine years, but ten winters, I have survived ten winters of Wichita. Isn't that great? But anyway, ten winters of Wichita, almost nine years as pastor of this church, he was my friend. And as we sat across the table and had breakfast, and he always liked to eat breakfast, and he always ate 
breakfast things that he should not eat. And I would say, Brother Dorian, you're 90-something years old. You shouldn't be having that much syrup on your pancakes. You shouldn't be eating that much fried bacon, but he would do it anyway. But he would always say to me in this conversation, we'd always get there at some point, where he'd say, you know what? I'm ready to go. Why doesn't God take me home? He was ready to go. And my response to him was this. Every time we had this conversation, I always gave him the same response. Brother Dorian, God has a plan. God has a purpose. And until God has finished his plan and his purpose for your life, and he's ready to bring you home, you're going to remain here. So as long as you remain here, continue faithfully doing what God has called you to do. For he has a plan and has a purpose. And that plan and that purpose completed for him on Good Friday. He died early in the morning on Good Friday. What a great, what a great day for a pastor to die on Good Friday. 90 plus years old. Had lived a full life. But God had a plan and a purpose and a time in which he called him home. I'm not sure how long we're going to be here. And I'm not sure when God's going to sound the trumpets and the trumpet of God's going to blow and Christ is going to return as he promised he would. But I know that my God, who is sitting and reigning and ruling on the throne, one of these days will say, Hey, boys, call him out to the angels. Sound the trumpet. Let her fly, guys. Jesus, are you ready? He's going, I'm ready. And his plan and his purpose will be fulfilled, and Christ will return as he promised he would, and those of us who remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and we will be forever with the Lord. And eternity, that moment, will then begin. Time as we know it will end. For the Christ who rose from the dead and ascended to the sky promised to one day return. And I'm afraid that many of us, like on that day in the book of Acts, who stood there and just gazed at the heavens, waiting for Christ to return, and the angels had his, hey boys, there's a task, there's a responsibility, there's an assignment that you must be about. You need to go about that assignment. You need to accomplish and fulfill that responsibility. For one of these days, Christ is going to return, and until then, you need to be found watching carefully. You need to wait confidently, and you need to walk with a commitment where you take up your cross and follow Christ as a real, authentic, genuine believer awaiting for your Savior and your Lord to return. Are you authentic in your faith? Are you a disciple? This was a private conversation between Jesus and the core disciples who had left everything to follow him, who took up their cross and committed to follow him wherever he led them. And last week he said, boys, we're headed to the cross. We're headed to a life of death. And they were willing to follow him. And here he's saying to us that until he calls us home, either through death or, or his return, we must continue to be committed to the leadership and the lordship of Christ and be found faithful when he returns. It begins by being real, by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And unless you have a personal relationship where Jesus Christ is your Savior and you've committed to follow him as your leader, as your Lord, you're not ready for his return. But he says to them, as he says to us, not only be real, but he also says be ready. Once you've settled the issue with your relationship with Jesus and you've accepted him as your personal Savior and Lord and you have committed to taking up your cross and following him wherever he leads, you're ready. He says you're real, now be ready. 
How do, you, how, do, how do you get ready, he says in the passage. Notice verse 37. He says, for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus gives them a clue as to what the days are going to be like. He said, let me tell you something. When I return, I will be scoffed. My return is being scoffed and will be scoffed. And he alludes to an Old Testament passage to which the disciples are incredibly familiar. And he says, my return will be scoffed. And before I return, there are going to be people that are going to laugh. They're going to reject. They're going to resist. And they're going to refuse the fact that I am who I claim that I am and that I will someday return. Just as in the days of Noah. Did you know Noah in the New Testament was proclaimed to be a preacher of righteousness? You see, Noah, sometimes we have a tendency to forget, was not just some dude who, who built an ark and saved a bunch of animals, and, and him and his family of eight were the only ones who were saved. But during the 120 years that he built the ark, he actually preached. He preached. He lived not only the testimony of practicing out his faith in building the ark because he believed that the floods were coming, and because he believed the floods were coming, he followed the obedience that he had given, the instruction he had given from God, and he was building the ark, and people could see the fact that they were building this ark, and I'm convinced they laughed at him while they were watching him build the ark, but he kept right on building the ark. People may be laughing at you as you're practicing your faith, but he only practiced his faith, but he proclaimed the righteousness of God. He said, guys, judgment's coming. God is, is angry at your wickedness. God is tired of the way that you're living your life. And the, the judgment of God is coming. You need to get ready. The rains are going to fall from the sky and they are rain. <laughs> rain's never fallen from the sky. What righteousness was he preaching? The righteousness of the conscience. While it is true that the Ten Commandments and the laws had not been given, God had given and endowed within man a sense of their consciousness of what was right and what was wrong. And they knew what was right and what was wrong. And they were violating the conscience that God had given them. And they were living wicked, vile, sinful lives, rejecting the righteousness and rejecting their conscience. And, and Noah was reminding them, guys, you, are, you, are, you have rejected God. You're rebelling. You need to repent and turn to God. And they did not. And they scoffed and they laughed. And we today as a church have a message that Jesus is coming. And when he comes, there will be judgment. And I guarantee you, the world that we live in is scoffing. They are laughing. They are rejecting the message of the return of Christ. And so one of the signs is the scoffing that will take place. Not only that, but it will come suddenly. Notice in verse 38, for as those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. The primary word in this verse, I believe, is the word until. Circle that. Until. You see, until the flood actually came, he describes the conditions that were going on. People were just going on with their everyday life. They were living out their lives. They were entering into business and they were marrying and they were going to parties and they were going to ball games and they were just going on with their everyday normal lifestyle, just disbelieving and rejecting the reality that one day Christ who ascended to heaven is going to return and then all of a sudden he came and it wasn't until he came that they finally realized, oh, you're right, he's coming. But it was too late by then. And for those who are caught unprepared, it's going to seem to them as if it was sudden. Why is it sudden? Because they're not prepared. 
can't we have a little more time? Can't we negotiate a little more opportunity? But it's too late. And until the day that the flood came in the day of Noah when he entered the ark, they were unaware. Notice they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away and judgment took place. And he says, so will the Son of Man be when I return. Now, he's saying to the disciples, they don't fully understand. Because you see, they've not really embraced the fact and the reality that he's leaving. But he's telling to them in advance, when I leave, I'm going to return. And when I return, it's going to seem sudden. But it's not really that sudden. Not only will it be sudden and scoff, but notice it will be subjective or selective. It will be selective. Verse 40 says to us, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. There's two groups here, men and women. Isn't it great to know that God's not going to take just the women, gentlemen? Uh, let me say that again. Isn't it, aren't you glad that God's not just going to take the women, gentlemen? That means you're not going to be left here with the kids. Yeah, I can't imagine the women only going and saying, no, but my children, my children, their daddy will never make it. God is indiscriminate of male and female, boys and girls. And there are two sets of two, two men who are out in the field and they're working, earning a living for their family, supporting and sustaining their livelihood and while they're out in the field, one is taken and one is left. There are two women described here who are, who are preparing for the daily meal. They are grinding the wheat for the daily bread that they're going to serve to their family when it's time for the meal. And while they are serving or, or they're making the meal for the family to put on the table, in a moment's notice, one will be taken and one will be left. When Christ returns, there will be a selection that's going to happen automatically. And that selection is based upon preparedness. Because while there are two men in the field, only one was prepared. Only one gave thought for God. Only one gave thought for the eternal security that they needed, their eternal destiny. Only one gave the attention that was necessary to be spiritually ready and repented of their sin and received Christ. The other gave no regard to God, much less to Jesus, nor the return of Christ. And as they were working out in the field, side by side, one was taken and one was left. Two women, two mothers, two ladies who were preparing a meal for their family, doing exactly the same thing. One had no thought for God whatsoever, made no ample preparation spiritually for the return of Christ, didn't repent of her sin and received Jesus. And the other did. And when Christ returned, one stayed and one left. Now, I believe in the rapture, but this passage is not about the rapture because what is indicated here is the one that were taken, the ones that were taken were taken to judgment, and the ones that were left were left for the establishment of the kingdom of God. And here we have this selective process for when Christ comes back, there will be many who are ready and there will be some who are not. Which one are you? And notice number D, or letter D, his return is going to be sure. In order for us to be ready, we need to be sure that he's going to return. You know, in this passage, he says to them, the uncertainty of my when is a given. You're not going to know when. 
But even though you're uncertain about the when, you can be certain and you can be sure that I am coming. You can be sure that I'm coming. You may not know when, but you can be sure it will happen. He says, therefore, stay awake. This word stay awake is a continuous action. It is a constant discipline that we must exercise. We must stay awake. We should not be lazy or apathetic or indifferent or distracted. We must stay awake. We must focus and to be sure. Because why? The Lord is coming. Notice the Lord is coming. He is coming. Not maybe, but he is. Today is Mark's second anniversary. Two years ago you came on Easter, right Mark? Can we uh, show our appreciation to him and say thank you for being here? You owe me lunch for that, okay? I'm certainly glad you're here. And although he's from Oklahoma, we won't hold that against him. That was where he was born. And he claims to have spent some time in Kansas, up in Kansas City, but that's not really Kansas. That's another part of the world for us. You got to live in Kansas, not Kansas City. Those people up there are not real Kansans. And if you're from Kansas City, I apologize. I'm not originally from Kansas, but I got here as fast as I could, so I live in Wichita. And, uh, and he went to Florida for a number of years, you know, where they mow their grass in December and January. And when we got to talking, he couldn't wait. Well, actually, his wife is from, from up here in the Midwest. He married well, by the way. And so she was wanting to have seasons, you know, during the year. And so uh, we were talking in the last couple of weeks, and it's, we've had a warm winter, right? And in this warm winter, I kept telling him, you know, it could snow before Easter. And he disbelieved me. Now, I've only spent 10 winters in Wichita, but I do know that only a fool and a newcomer predicts weather in Wichita. Because you never know which way the wind's going to be going, blowing and when. I keep telling my dad, he said, the wind's not blowing today. Yes, it is. It always blows in Wichita. Yeah? Am I right? And, and, and when I woke up this morning, I sent him a text and said, I told you it was going to snow. How did I know that? It was an assumption. Was it based on fact? No. But I've had enough winters in Wichita to know that you can never predict what the weather's going to do. And so as I was praying this morning, I said, Lord, you're in control of the weather. You're in control of the roads. Whatever happens, happens. If we don't have five people there, that's okay. We're just going to have Easter anyway. But I didn't really know for sure, did I? But I know one thing for sure. I need to be ready when Christ returns. Because I know that when he promised that he's going to return, I know he will. And you and I not only be real, we need to be ready. Because one of these days, the trumpet of God's going to blow and Christ is going to return as he promised he would. And we better be ready. Are you ready? Well, the way to be ready is to be reliable. Last point. We need to be reliable. In other words, we need to be faithful. We need to be able to be counted on. And if you take a look at the text, there are three aspects about this, this, this reliability. There are three sort of groups of people that he describes, and we'll look at them very quickly. The first group is that he says we must stay focused there's a focus that we must have. He says in verse 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what part of the night the thief was coming, he should stay awake, should have stayed awake, and would not have, been le and would not have left his house be broken into. 
Here's a guy here who his character is one of not being vigilant. He's, he's completely unaware. He has no knowledge that the thief is going to come. And so because he has no knowledge the thief is going to come, he's not prepared. He doesn't stay awake. He goes to sleep and the thief comes and takes everything that he has. He's unprepared. He's not ready. He's unknowing. He's, he's caught off guard. He's not being vigilant. And because he's not vigilant, he has been robbed. And what he has in his possession has been taken from him. And Jesus says, notice, therefore, verse 44, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Circle that word, therefore. Don't be like the guy that he's just described, he's saying. Therefore, don't be like him. You, my disciples, be ready. You must be ready. We must be vigilant. We must be awake. We must be alert. We must be focused. And in the world that we live in, there are so many distractions, aren't there? There are so many distractions that that if I were in school today, they more than likely would give me a pill. Yeah, they didn't do that back then. Some of you know what I'm talking about. They just sent us to the principal's office and we got paddled. That didn't do very much for me. I don't know if it did anything for you either. Attention deficit. We as Christians are so easily distracted by the mundane, by the unimportant, by the invaluable, by the temporary. And we must stay focused on what is eternal, what is lasting, what is spiritual, what is genuine, and what is God's. And we are so unaware and we are not ready because we lack or we have what I call this Christian attention deficit in which we lack focus on the return of Christ. And when he comes, there are going to be many believers, many believers in Jesus who are not ready. Many. They believe in him. They put their trust in him. They've committed to follow him. But because they have lost focus, They have pursued other things that are less important, less valuable, temporary, and that exhaust the time, talent, and treasure that God has given them. And they've squandered away the stewardship that God entrusted to them when he saved them and gave them their salvation. Are you focused? Disciple? Not only should we stay focused, we need to serve faithfully. There's an aspect of service here that Christ describes in verse 45. He describes his disciples as servants. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. For truly I say to you, he will set him over his possessions. There's a a character here described by this faithful servant. He is a servant. That word servant means slave. That's a better better definition of this word, a slave. Those of us who are disciples are slaves to Christ. He is our owner. He is our Lord. He is our master. And we look to him and rely upon him for everything, purpose, everything. We're his slaves. At his beck and call to lead us wherever he wants us to go, to do through us whatever he wants to do, we simply 
give ourselves to him and say, lead us, Lord. I am your slave. You are my master. And this servant slave is described as someone who is faithful, someone who is reliable, someone who is trustworthy. Notice whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is the room his master will find so doing when he comes. He is a doer. He's not a sitter. He's not a soaker. He's not a being entertained. He is a doer. He is a player. He is involved in following Christ and involved in the mission of Christ. He is a doer. He has been faithful about fulfilling the great commandment and the great commission. He is following in the footsteps of Christ, hard after God. His heart is for Christ, and he's following Jesus. He is found doing what his master has told him to do. He's an obedient, faithful, trustworthy servant and slave. He's faithful. Why is he faithful? Because he's wise. Why is he wise? (laughs) My master's going to return someday. And when he returns, I don't want to be caught unprepared. I don't want to be caught doing things I shouldn't be doing and going where I shouldn't be going and not involved in what he has called me to do. I'm going to be caught doing what he has called me to do, being what he called me to become and saying what he asked me to say and going where he is leading me to go. I'm going to be found doing what he has called me when he comes. I'm wise. I'm smart. I, I'm, I'm using my brain, man, because I know he's going to come back. And because I am wise, I'm going to be faithful, and I'm going to be his servant slave. Faithful. And notice the reward. He will set him over all his possessions. Man, what, an, what a great, great period of reward for those of us who are wise enough to be faithful when Christ returns in a twinkling of an eye in the split second could happen right now. Right now. And he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have run a good race. You have fought a good fight. You have finished the course. Now come and receive your reward. Faithfulness is reliability. And lastly, the third and final person he describes is a foolish person. I almost wish you to describe this person because this sort of breaks my heart. Verse 48, but if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in that place there will be no weeping, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I thought long and hard about this. The wicked means to be morally corrupt, to be bad, to be unrepentant, to be lost, to be an unbeliever. And, and the problem with the word wicked, it's put with the word servant. And there are some who would want us to think that this servant belonged to Jesus, but because he was wicked, he lost his salvation. But that's not what this text is saying. What this text is saying is he is a servant, not because he is a disciple of Jesus or a member of the family of God. He is a servant in that he was made by God. Every human being that has life owes God their life because God is the author of life. And God sustains a person's life. Sinner 
and believer, wicked and saint. And because he gave them life and sustains their life, it's called common grace. And God has been gracious even to those who are the wicked. And he has given them a stewardship because what they have, their life itself, has been given to them by God and they ought to recognize that their life has been given to them by God and they owe God their life and they should turn to God and trust in Jesus. But because they are wicked, they do not. And and they have this false sense of security in believing that their life belongs to them, but it doesn't. And that what they have is to be used for their own self-indulgence. And that's not why God gave it to them. And they have this false sense of security that because there's no God, there is no Jesus, there is no return of Christ, so therefore there's no accountability and there is no judgment. So eat, drink, and be merry and live your life in the flesh and for the carnality and the self-pleasure and the self-indulgence that is there because this is all there is. But they are foolish because this is not all there is. And you and I as believers sometimes, if we're not careful, we too can be guilty of living foolishly. We can buy into the lie of the world that tells us that this is all there is, but this isn't all there is. We got a lot of children in here today. I'm going to close with this. How many of you children have played hide-and-go-seek? Like hide and go seek? You know, when you're six foot five, it's hard to hide anywhere. But believe it or not, I was little at one time and it was easier to hide. But we all like hide and go seek. And hide and go seek is a fun game for not only children but grandparents. Amen? And if you haven't played hide and go seek with the grandchildren lately, you need to. Now, if they're 14, 15, 16, they just don't try that. They're going to look at you kind of weird. But if they're little, it's a good thing to do. Play hide-and-go-seek. They love to play hide-and-go-seek. The funny thing is they hide in places where you can see them anyway, but you need to act like you don't see them and play the game, okay? Just, just entertain them a little bit. But hide-and-go-seek is a fun game. And the rules are simple, aren't they, hide-and-go-seek? There's one person that stands in the corner, and they're supposed to close their eyes, but a lot of times they do one of these numbers, you know? And uh, they're supposed to count to 100, maybe, Uh, 10? That's not enough time to go hide. It's a good practice for children to learn their numbers if they have to count to 100. It gives you as an adult a little more time to have freedom if they count to 100. You got to play the game rightly, okay? You don't have to hide till they get to 75. That way you can do some chores around the house. But anyway, so when they finally get to the final number, what, what do they say? Ready or not, here I come. Jesus, one of these days, the clock is ticking, and he's counting. 80, 81, 82, 83, 84, 85, 86, 87, 88, 90, 91, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96, 97, 98, 99, 100. Here I come, ready or not. And there are going to be a lot of people who aren't ready. He's coming again. Are you ready? Easter is not just about his ascension. 
It's about his return. And one of these days, he's going to shout, ready or not, here I come. And there are going to be a lot of people who are not ready. And my job today is to make sure that you're not one of them. Are you ready? Let's pray. song